they they did not do that on the new Judge Dredd movie. I'm, I'm very disappointed. I like the new Judge Dredd movie. No, no, I'm 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 being facetious. Oh. oh, they actually did do it in the new Judge Dredd movie. You just oh, I, I I didn't remember that. <laughs> no, they did. I'm giving you a hard time. Oh come on, I'm right, tired, so, uh, man. Luke Cage. Yes, Luke Cage. Luke Cage. Just saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill was the one. Bill, you didn't you want to get to bed early? I know, but see now I'm talking, so now I'm I'm yeah, gonna. Yeah, your, your little friend Luke is on. Oh yeah, yeah. Stop it. This place is my reputation, my legacy, my blood. And when the smoke clears, I promise you, I'm gonna be the king. He shielded the king. Blood everywhere, none of it his. He had bullet holes in his shirt. How did he not get hit? That shotgun blast alone should have killed you. You're amazing. I don't want to be different than anybody else. People need you. Cops can only do so much. Harlem's about control. Power. Politics is where the power is. It's gangsters like me that let you hold on to what you got. You never really know what anyone is capable of. There is nothing that can hurt you. So what the hell are you afraid of? Ah, major. You a slave to a page in my rhyme book. Hit big money, playboy, your time's up. I'm gonna take his rooks, his knights, his queen. Y'all got hit last night. Took damn near every penny I got. You need to take his ass out. You find his weakness, and you squeeze. Don't be a hero. I'm not the hero type. Looks to me like that's what you've always been. You want to go to war? I'll take you to war. You don't have enough people. You want some? It's you. No, man, it's you. Oh, man, PLO style was my joy back in the day. Sweet Christmas. <laughs> you a double XL? Way ahead of you, homie. Ah, oh, made you love. In. I I'll, guess I am. I'll bring. I Jeez, can bring you didn't even let me. Didn't even let me answer. I didn't let you answer. I'm sitting here with silence for ten minutes. That was Luke that will bring us in. I'll bring us in. I'm Luke. That's Luke's got to stick together. <laughs> me, Luke Cage, Luke Skywalker. Oh, yeah. I got it. I got it.
I'm a little slow on the uptake. He's like Bubba, what you call it, Bubba Shrimp. Yeah. I was going to say Bubba Fett. <laughs> he's worth a lot to me, but... <laughs> but he's no good to me dead. Is, is that the uh, Boba Fett who went to what's it? Uh, biscuit in a basket. That's, that's yeah. Boba Boba Fett. Yeah. Oh, Boba Fett. Boba Fett went to biscuit basket. Yeah. Boba Fett. Yeah. What else does Boba Fett say? Uh, I can't think. I can't think of any Boba Fett lines. He screams like a girl. Is that one? Whoa. Bill, what's what's which one are you doing? I don't know. Are I'll you doing a book? One. I, I did. I grabbed Marvel Team Ups number seventy-five, which is really just them fighting a fire. It's, oh, is that, that the one with with Peter Peter and and Luke fighting in the big tenement fire seal? Yeah, I actually do have that one. I just don't have it out. Okay, I thought I I thought it sounded familiar. John Byrne did the art. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's really a nice one. I mean, it, there's really not much to it. I I can do it. I don't even need a synopsis. I'll I'll do it on the cuff. Famous last words. God, we'll never be here. We'll never finish tonight. All right, so bring it on in, Luke. Okay. All right. <clears throat> <clears throat> Hello and welcome everyone to Back to the Bins. I'm your co-host this evening, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I want to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show. And my cohorts tonight are your usual gang of uh, bins diving, um, uh, I don't know, bins divers, binsers. We are binsers. Bum, ba, da, dum, bum, 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 bum. Let me introduce first my good friend, Mr. Paul Spataro. Thank you, Luke. And Paul's usual um, partner in crime, Mr. Bill Robinson. Excuse me, Doctor Bill Robinson. You know, you know, this is kind. Of, this is nice when we have guests because they bring the show in. It's very nice. <laughs> yeah, because because you bring in the show all the time. Otherwise, right? I bring it every day. I bring it. He's I just don't bring. It, I'm bringing it. I'm loving it, Jerry. Oh, sorry. I'm I'm out there and I'm loving every minute of it. Oh my God! There's nothing between us except a thin layer of gabardine. <laughs> It's Gore-Tex, Jerry. It's wonderful. And uh, believe it or not, despite that, we are not here to talk about Seinfeld, although that would make a very cool comic uh, if the right creative team was on it. We are instead here to talk about one of my favorite heroes, a hero that if you uh, if you do a little bit of deduction and you looked at the artwork, you might have realized is a guy that I started following because of same name syndrome. We're going to be taking a look at some adventures starring Luke Cage, the hero for hire. Woo-hoo. Sweet Christmas. Sweet Christmas indeed. And um, what one thing that, you know, saying Sweet Christmas is funny is that, you know, that started out as a way for various writers, including, you know, uh, Archie Goodwin and Don McGregor and, um, you know, some of the other guys who worked on the book before it became Power Man and Iron Fist, for them to uh, kind of get around the code with some of that black exploitation talk. You know, that was actually a retcon later on to actually be that he would uh that when when cage was growing up his aunt and his grandmother would not let him use profanity so those were the spoonerisms that he created in order to sound like he was swearing <laughs> I, ne- I when i read it as a kid i never saw that as like being a uh as a swear from him yeah i never like i didn't, i mean obviously it isn't but i mean i never even saw it as having that tone I was mm-hmm. sort of as more of like a almost like an oh my god kind of thing like that. <laughs> hmm. Yep. Yeah. And and what's funny is in the current book, um, currently Marvel publishes uh, a book Power Man and Iron Fist, and uh, now because Luke is of course married to Jessica Jones and they have a young daughter, he takes it even further. And uh, his favorite, one of his favorite euphemisms is fiddle faddle, <laughs> and fiddle faddling. I can't take no more of this fiddle faddle with you, Danny. You know. So. <laughs> He has cleaned up his language even more so. Knock off the jibber jabber. Yeah. 
Now, when when were you guys respectively uh, introduced to Luke Cage? Hmm. You well, go. Bill, if you if you got to think about it, Bill, I, I I know the answer to this one. Um, I was uh, you know growing up in the I was born in the '80s, became a comics reader in the '90s, so I was very familiar with the '90s properties. And actually, I was first introduced to Luke Cage when I bought Cage number twelve from his 90s series at my then local comic shop, which was video comics cards and video stop in Brewster, New York, where I also worked uh, that summer. And that featured um, uh, Luke Cage wearing his 90s uh, outfit, which is basically just uh, dark pants and a red T-shirt and him fighting Iron Fist, actually. And it was a double-sized issue. And I said, yeah, you know what? I'll check this guy out. The guy's name is Luke, right? So I got that one. I got one more issue of it. I never really caught on to it. Because I was, you know, I was a preteen at that time. I was chasing every fad known to uh, God or man, especially since, you know, that was a time of image and, you know, Valiant and a lot of the third, you know, the, the small publishers that came out and, you know, how, how it is when you're a kid sometimes. So, but I got into Luke Cage really when I was in college, when I started really reading more and learning more about Marvel's Bronze Age, which was before my time. And I'd, like I said earlier, I was initially attracted to Luke Cage because of same name syndrome. You know, it's rare to find another fictional character besides uh, Luke Skywalker named Luke. And so I, st- but then as I started reading about his uh, stories and reading about his character, I discovered that him and I had a lot in common in a lot of ways. We were both kind of curmudgeonly, you know, uh, but we both, uh, you know, seemed to have uh, what things didn't go our way a lot of times and we just get piled on until we could have that one big carthritic release. Um, you know, uh, he, and uh, so I, I just started buying up his books from, the uh, comic shop in Anderson, South Carolina, which is Planet Comics, and also at Comic Cons and stuff like that. And I just really grew to like the character because of that. And then, you know, from there, learning about his history and, you know, the the first African-American character to have his own title and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, it just, I, just, I just really grew into liking him because I love his attitude. I love the fact that Luke has been dumped on his whole life and finally sees the chance to get something back from the world but ultimately, he's a good guy. He doesn't want to take advantage of people, so ultimately, he doesn't. You know, he he does. He's the hero for hire. He's all about getting paid and getting his bank on and all that. But ultimately, he does this because he wants to be a hero and wants to be a good guy. So that was how I got into Luke Cage. How about you, Bill? I want to say I probably first saw him in like guest appearances in the Avengers and uh, earlier Fantastic Fours. Um, cause I didn't jump straight into Luke Cage in his own books or with, 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 um, Iron Fist for that matter. Uh, so I can't really pinpoint exactly where, but I know, I think I actually took more of an interest in Luke Cage actually recently when they reformed the Avengers and he joined. So it's, it's, I've only, I guess I've had a cage, Luke Cage renaissance, renaissance, renaissance. <laughs> Har- are you saying you had a Harlem Renaissance? Is that what you're saying? Ooh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I don't think you're alone in that, though, Bill, because a lot of, you know, uh, Cage, after after the Heroes for Hire Like, books I the- knew of Luke Cage, but I wasn't, yeah. you know... Right. I mean, I, I didn't I, have I a lot after- of Luke Cage books in my collection. Yeah, well, what I'm saying is, after Heroes for Hire, the um, the one from, like, 1997 or so during Heroes, Heroes Reborn... After that ended, I don't think Cage appeared again in a book until Secret War. You know, so I mean, that's like what? That's almost that's like eight years where I don't think he made an appearance where he had a line 
until Secret mm. War, and then Alias was right around the same time. So, yeah, I mean, my Brian Michael Bendis, you know, th- there are some people that like what he did with Luke Cage. There are some people that really dislike what he did with Luke Cage. But, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, Bendis really likes the character and brought him very much into the spotlight, like you said, with New Avengers. Because once New Avengers hit, Cage was front and center. He was on every Avengers team for a while there. And only recently is, you know, left being associated with the Avengers and that whole family of books. Well, I know there was just before the big reboot, there was, uh, I believe, Captain America and the Avengers. Uh, I remember reading some of those. I finally picked all those up. I think there's only about 10 or 13 issues. Um, I think I might have finished that off when I was visiting you, Paul, up in New York. Um, But I know there was some things that happened and actually the Avengers, Luke Cage and... Sam Wilson and the rest and a bunch of the other Avengers actually I think it was due to machinations by the Red Skull like their personality had switched and they were actually becoming like corporatized a-holes <laughs> just to to put it mildly was that, was that the book Al Ewing was writing uh hold on I know Al, I yes yes wrote, it was yeah yeah because he, he wrote Mighty Avengers that had yeah it was yeah it was Captain America and the Mighty Avengers yeah, well, I remember that. That I remember that team had like uh, Cage and Falcon and Monica Rambo and mm-hmm. uh, I had a lot. Uh, the, the the White Tiger, uh, the New Power Man. It was a real was interesting crew of guys that was on. And they there. had was that the 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 black uh, superhero was it Blue Atlas? Yeah, the Blue Marvel. Blue Marvel. Yeah, the Blue Marvel was like he was like their scientific advisor guy. Mm-hmm. But he was also like Superman. From yeah, yeah, but I'm, at least early on, he was always in his lab in that book. I remember that, you know, because <laughs> he's like he's like icon. He's like Superman, but he's also like super smart, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but be that as it may, I th- we're going a little bit earlier tonight than that, though. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give, I'm going to give uh, my history also a little bit here. Yeah. So I feel like I'm left out of the crowd. Uh, I'm sorry. I'll just shut up. I'm, <laughs> no, no, need to shut up. But I just want to give. I want to share. Um, yeah, I started picking up books, you know, around 1972 or so. And at that point, I w- it was like, you know, if it's to understand the Marvel is producing it, I wanted it. So I had picked up uh, Power Man number 20 was the first issue I had, which is the second issue featuring Cottonmouth, who's prominently in the, uh, in the, in the series. Uh, that was my first exposure. And I read those books. I was totally unfamiliar or totally, I guess, too young to appreciate what the whole exploitation film business was like so I didn't really kind of catch any of that when I read it I just read it you know purely for the stories right out and I enjoyed them and then I remember the next exposure I had was picking up back issues getting Spider-Man 123 when J. Jonah Jameson pays him to go after Spider-Man and I you know I, I just always like I said I always enjoyed the character then he joined the FF for a while then he teamed up with Iron Fist And I enjoyed all of that, and then eventually I got out of comics. So when I got back in, the fact that he had kind of fallen out of prominence really, you know, I I hadn't even realized it. And I have mixed feelings about the Avengers run because I'm happy that Bendis revived the character. And I liked the way he wrote the character, but I would have preferred to see him written that way in a solo series because I just, there's something about him being an Avenger that doesn't seem right to me. It's it's just too organized, too like almost like you said, corporate. I like to I like seeing him yeah. in just kind of the hero for hire mode. Or well, yeah, but they were but they were more like the they were more like the underground Avengers because yeah, that's what I like. Yeah, that was when he would they were hiding out in Doctor Strange's uh, 
Santorum's in his sanctum. Sanctum Santorum. And it looked like it had been basically like it had been gutted and deserted, but it was because he had a glamour spell on it. And um, so that it that it appeared that way. And they were it was him, Jessica Jones. Was Squirrel Girl hanging out with them, too, at that she time? Was, she was okay. babysitting what? the baby. I don't know if she right. was doing it yet. Yeah, she, she eventually became Nadia. the babysitter. And I, and I think they had the thing, Wolverine. They were like the underground Avengers. Yeah, and and it, and and I agree with you, Paul. I, I like I like Luke on his own, or working with Iron Fist, or even when he was with the the full Heroes for Hire, which had um, the Black Knight, Ant Man, Cersei, a bunch of kind of leftover Avengers, actually. But <laughs> you know, they were still the Heroes for Hire. Uh, but but I think part of it is when he became an Avenger was after Avengers disassembled, which to me has always been kind of the line in the sand between the Marvel universe I knew when I was growing up and the current one. You know, because that was when that was when the Avengers got blowed up. You know, that was it. When now we it, when when somebody came or left from the Avengers, it used to be a big deal. And after New Avengers, it was like, oh, okay, well, we've got multiple books, so anybody can be an Avenger now. Yeah, so, that's one of, one of my dislikes about the Avengers in recent years is it's not a it's not a big deal because you can point to virtually everybody in the Marvel universe, and they've all been Avengers at one time or another. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I you know I've always enjoyed the character, and this is a rare score episode because the miniseries or the series—I don't know why you call it a miniseries—but the series has been out for oh I guess about two months now, and usually we do these episodes pretty much uh, at the time of release or very very close to it in time. And at this point, I've seen the entire series. Uh, Bill, what'd you say? You're into like about episode eight. Yeah, I'd say I've seen about half to three quarter, um, but Luke's hasn't seen any, so I can't even reference where I've. <laughs> Let's just say a major villain is taken down, but then he gets out of jail. That's right where I'm at. Okay. Uh, if, without yeah, if without you can figure out where I'm at. Spoiler free, having seen the entire thing, I found that the series starts very very slow. Mm, the first mm-hmm. three episodes or so, I was interested in it, but I was not hooked. The fourth episode, it gears up a little bit more, and they give you some more... Uh... Well, it's also told out of sequence. Yes. Which kind of threw me off at first until I realized that's what was going on. But the, the but... fourth episode was where, where I got hooked. So it, it, was... if, if anybody is that hasn't the, is seen that it... The, is that the barbershop? Uh, or was that earlier? Well, minor spoiler. I hope uh, Luke doesn't mind me throwing a minor no, one uh, and anybody who's listening who's really, really spoiler-averse and, and hasn't seen it yet, you know, I understand. Uh, but I'm going to give a minor one. And the fourth episode is actually the origin episode. Oh, no, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you actually... Mm, should we actually say no. what happened? No, oh, I don't oh, want to oh, try and stay oh, relatively oh, spoiler-free. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, I, what I'll say is this, the origin is fairly true to the comics. I'd say it's very true to the comics. Hint, hint. Wink, <laughs> wink. Nudge, nudge. Say no more, so subtle, no Bill. Well, you know, Luke's Luke's origin is not is not one of. I mean, as stupid as this sounds, it's not one of the more outlandish ones in the Marvel universe. I'll just that say this: all... it's it's visually very close. How's how's yeah. that for a so skirting? Why don't you just beat him over the head with it? <laughs> oh, all I'm saying is that I always thought, even back in the '90s, when there was talk of a Iron Fist movie starring um, uh, Ray Park, you know. That I always thought that, well, if you get right down to it, Iron uh, Power Man's origin is relatively easy to film. You know, it's not 
you don't need to be in a far off jungle. You don't need an, a you know a gamma bomb explosion. You don't need you know any, anything really. It's 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 fairly straightforward. I always thought, and I always said that was one of the strengths of it. But I think we're going to get to talk about his origin a bit more in detail uh, a little bit later on the show. I think. Well, yeah, because that'll be the first book we're going to cover. So we will definitely will discuss his origin. Uh, so the, the you know the the series it's it's it al- it almost has the feel of I'm trying to remember what series it was. Uh, oh, the, the first season of 24, if anybody watched that. It had a storyline that kind of concluded halfway through, and then they kind of re- restarted the storyline. And mm. I always thought that was probably because they got a 12-issue commitment for the show, and they had it ready to wrap up in 12 if they needed to. But then when they got the order for the full season of 24 episodes, they kind of had to revive the story. Now, this one, they knew how many episodes they were going with. But there are a couple of changes in direction as the series goes on, uh, or as the season goes on. Yeah, but because right say... where I'm at right now, it, it you could almost end it right there. But it's I'm like, well, what's going to happen now? Are you still going? Huh. Yeah, but I, I that's, did that's not have I'm a problem with those changes in direction because I feel as if they change direction and ramp it up when they do. Oh. So it's mm. kind of welcome when they do it because... For exactly that reason. And some of the characters are are just very, very well done. Some of the villainous characters, you know, the motivations aren't necessarily the deepest thing in the world, but they play them well. And, uh, you know, anybody who has seen the series already, you, you definitely want to listen to the, uh, the five-minute freak on it because they did a nice job of discussing it, and they went through it episode by episode. Yes, the, the three-and-a-half-hour five-minute freak. That's it. Yeah, the, <laughs> it's... It's uh, what would that be? Twelve, twenty, like like forty. It's forty-five minute freaks all jammed together. <laughs> so now we're gonna get Iron Fist in April, and I believe the next series after that will be the Defenders. I don't think they're gonna do any season twos or threes before they get to the Defenders. Mm, I don't. That is, yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's that's correct because I know they've been talking about. Um, Season three of Daredevil, season two of Jessica Jones, and then The Punisher as well, getting his spinoff series. But all of that coming after Defenders is my understanding. They need to get Doctor Strange in there. Oh, sorry. It would be it would be Doctor great if they could somehow Morbius work him in. And Night Stalkers. That's who we need. Who? We need to get Morbius and the Night Stalkers and the Darkhold Redeemer. I mean, we got Ghost Rider on Agents of Shield. Just get the whole Midnight Suns up in there. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know how far Paul is in uh, Agents of Shield. I've, I've seen Ghost well, Rider. No, I'm, Okay. Well, it's on. It's on every every print ad and every commercial. Well, yeah, that's I, true. I haven't, watched, I haven't watched Agents of Shield this year. They've been screaming it from the rooftops. I think so. Yeah, pretty much. But it's the Robbie Reyes. Uh, yeah, I'm Daredevil. disappointed with that. I mean, I would, uh, I would have rather yeah, well, than, goes right you know, Danny Catch or. Uh, yeah, but well, yeah, last episode, not, uh, last yeah, uh, well, there was a appearance of someone last episode that was on a motorcycle and did have a flaming head who because they showed how. Robbie Reyes got his uh, Ghost Rider power, yeah. and it was some guy that comes up on a motorcycle that you know had flames on his head. Don't well, say who he, he is, but you know. they they well the thing you know that the whole I mean the lawsuit just got settled involving the creator of um you know who the creators were. I say just got it was last year I think of who the creators of Johnny Blaze were. So I don't think you're going to see Marvel use anybody named except Robbie Reyes uh, as Ghost Rider anytime soon. You know. Mm. 
just personally, that's my opinion. And plus, he's the one that had the most recent book. He's the one who's the only one left standing, I think, in the comics at this point. So, you know, that's the one they have a material interest in promoting more so than Johnny or Danny. I mean, Danny Ketch was my Ghost Rider. You know, I, again, I was from the 90s. He was Ghost Rider, and Johnny Blaze carried the Hellfire shotgun. Ghost Rider 2099, man. Yeah, man. Ghost in the Machine. Just like Punisher 2099. Jake Gallows for life, man. (laughs) God, that book's awful. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, you know, I'm I'm old school Marvel. I went with Johnny Blaze personally, but I would have just preferred, I want my Ghost Rider on a motorcycle, not in a car. That's really all all it comes down to. They could they could use whatever surname they want for him. Yeah. But anyway, uh, you want to ju- start jumping into some books? Or anybody got anything else? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty good. <laughs> All right, I'll I'll take that apathy as being a let's get into books. <laughs> it wasn't apathy. It was a yeah. Oh, you know that's an, that I, I I have a tough time calling that enthusiasm. <laughs> Sweet Christmas. I'm there. Ready. You go. So I decided, as I usually do with these score episodes, to go a little older. And as I have Imagine done on that. several occasions, oh. huh? Oh, nothing. Nothing. I didn't mean. say. What'd you say? What'd you say? I, I couldn't hear that. you. I'm getting old. Exactly. <laughs> but I decided to go for the introduction of Luke Cage, which was in Hero for Hire number one from June of 1972. So I guess that first issue I got must have been in 1974, because it was issue 20. Anyway, the story was written by Archie Goodwin, penciled by George Tusca, everyone's favorite. Well, Luke's favorite. I like that, I was going to say. Inked by Billy Graham, lettered by Skip Koloff, edited by Stan Lee, and there's a credit also given that there's considerable creative contributions by Roy Thomas and John Romita. My guess is Roy Thomas said, hey, they got these cool blaxploitation films out there. Why don't you do a comic like that? And uh, John Romita helped, obviously, to, to create the costume. Yeah. The, the cover is by John Romita, and it's a classic image of Luke Cage in his original look, complete with the yellow blouse, metal tiara, black pants with yellow buccaneer cuffs, and a belt made from a chain with very large links. In the background, there are images muted with a red color scheme of Times Square-type images, prison scene, and uh, I do question, though, whether a deck of cards and a set of dice are evocative of Times Square, uh, as opposed to maybe Vegas. And the cover tells us this, this is our sensational origin issue. Turning the page, we get a splash showing us what George Tusca would do with the same premise as Romita had for the cover. And now you know why I love Romita's art so much. The text tells us to look closely at the figure before you. Study his costume. This is Luke Cage. Now a superhero, yet unlike any before him. But he was not always as you see him. Before the superhero, there was the man. What follows then is the story of the man. The making of the strange, strangely unique superhero. The story opens at Seagate Prison, one year earlier. A maximum security prison from which no one has ever escaped. Sometimes called Little Alcatraz. Carl Lucas is being released from a stretch in solitary where he was left for three days longer than his sentence. The correction officer, a dude named Quirt, is riding him hard. Carl Lucas is next talking to another prisoner named Shades, 
who wants to stage a demonstration of sorts for the new warden who's coming in, but Lucas declines to participate. Shade's flunky pulls a shiv on Lucas, who disposes of the flunky quickly with a left to the jaw. The head of the guards, Captain Rackham, uh, and Quirt witness this, and Lucas is brought to Rackham, at, who wants to get in good with the new warden. Lucas declines his offer to work together, and Rackham orders Quirt to take him back to the hole and break him. Quirt proceeds to put a beat down on Lucas. The beating is stopped when the new warden, who looks to have been inspired by Clint Eastwood, comes in and puts an end to it. He has Quirt locked in the solitary cell with Lucas, who returns the beating that Quirt had been giving him. Next, the warden visits Rackham and busts him from captain to regular guard. Later on, Lucas is visited in his cell by a doctor, Noah Burstein, who has a medical project that requires a unique brand of man. Lucas tells Burstein about his past, about how he was on the streets with his surrogate brother, Willis Stryker, and how they were violent criminals, until Lucas tired of that lifestyle. The two then started competing for the affection of a woman called Reva. So one night, she was out with Stryker, and they were ambushed by the syndicate. Reva gets away and calls to Lucas for help. He quickly goes to Stryker's aid, takes out the attackers, leaving quickly with Stryker before the police arrive. At this point, Reva is too afraid to continue with Stryker's lifestyle. She tells him as he's recovering, and he blames Lucas for turning her against him. Reva and Lucas get serious over time until Stryker frames him as a drug dealer. And so, now he's in Seagate. And, as a kicker, Reva is eventually killed in the crossfire of an attempt on Stryker's life. Back to Seagate, and the one year prior to the beginning of the episode, but after the flashback that we just saw, where Dr. Burstein tells Lucas that if he volunteers for a project, it could influence the parole board. Lucas declines because he doesn't believe he would survive. In his cell, Lucas is visited by Rackham, who tells Lucas that he plans to make his life into a living hell. And at that, Lucas decides that he might as well volunteer for the project. The next day, the project begins in some type of dungeon. The doctor says it's an electro-biochemical system for stimulating human cell regeneration. Can you say Super Soldier Project? <laughs> I was just going to go, Super Soldier, Super Soldier. That's exactly, actually, that's exactly what it is. That was, uh, that was, came up later, I think, when uh, Chris Claremont was writing the book. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I get, they, they kind of retconned it in, but it's still, still pretty much the Super Soldier Project. And so Lucas begins the process after being injected with some type of serum and then eases into a chemical bath. While the doctor is off checking levels or some such thing, Rackham makes his way into the lab and messes with the controls, causing the electro-biochemical process to soar to crazy levels until Lucas actually punches his way out of the chemical hell. Lucas slaps Rackham, who was taking aim with his gun, but it's as if he struck him with a hammer. Lucas punches the wall in frustration and is startled when the stones start breaking. He pounds his way and punches through the wall and takes off. As he runs, he's shot four times and falls into the river. He's taken by the current to a darkened area where he sees that he's only bruised where the bullets hit him, even though the guards have, have to assume that he's dead. Eventually, Lucas makes his way to the mainland. He unexpectedly stops a dude that was attempting a robbery and is given a cash reward. He visits a costume shop and then Reva's grave. He takes on the name Luke Cage and starts his search for vengeance on Will Willis Stryker. Now it's time to don his superhero outfit and start to put a crimp on Stryker's criminal operation. Cut to Stryker, who has taken on the identity of Diamondback, 
faster with knives than any rattler, and with an outfit to match. He sends out his men to bring Luke Cage to him. Meanwhile, Luke's lonely figure haunts the streets, an unknown, untested superhero, a man called Cage. He walks and waits and thinks of a girl named Reva and knows soon the time will approach when vengeance is his. End of issue one. This I gotta is say, a dense story, man. <laughs> there is so much of the so much of this origin story makes it to that episode. Yes. That episode and, and that series. Because there's what didn't make it into that episode makes it into the series in other places. Yeah, like like the name Diamondback. That's the guy behind that's fronting Cottonmouth. And it's or, Willis Stryker. Oh, see, I didn't know that. Oops, spoiler. Spoiler! And That's also, okay. and Shades is in um, is in the series. Yep. Is, it, is uh, Comanche in there also? That's his partner that's with him here in the, in the prison. Yeah, no, Comanche's not in it. And Shades kind of has a different role. Well, but he does have an comic. older, yeah. Isn't that the old guy that's, that's telling him, what was the old man's name in the prison? Was his I, name I Comanche? Honestly, I don't remember. So maybe it is Comanche. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. And then... Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, and Reva, I mean, she actually... Well, Reva, actually, I know, her, and on the Marvel st- uh, Cinematic stuff, she was in uh, um, Jessica Jones. In Jessica Jones, yeah. So, yeah, okay. it's a little bit different. But, yeah, she makes an appearance in the series. Uh, I won't give anything away there. She She's in the Luke Cage series, obviously, because it's kind of... And some stuff, from, stuff, some stuff from Jessica Jones that was left unanswered is answered in the Luke Cage series. Concerning Reva. Yeah. So it's interesting. But just but looking yeah, at this your, issue. Oh, sorry. Yeah, this sorry. issue is, is very, you're right, it, it's very dense. There's a lot of story here because we get, you know, his origin kind of on two fronts. We get the origin of Luke Cage, who hero for hire, and we also get kind of the origin of how Carl Lucas, you know, law-abiding citizen, ended up in Little Alcatraz in Seagate Prison. So there's kind of two different sets of origins here because we get to see how he goes from being, you know, uh, getting, uh, you know, framed and put in crime for put in jail for a crime he didn't commit and how he takes that and turns that how that little twist of fate here of being a volunteer, a you know, air quotes up to the microphone volunteer for this project, how it kind of changes his life irrevocably. So, yeah, there's a lot to this. I remember I got this. Um, I first got this issue off of eBay when I was in college. I got issues one, two, and three off eBay, some of the earliest Luke Cage comics I ever bought. And I remember it was just like a lousy, rainy day, and uh, it was too cold to go out and do anything. So I just sat in my room and read Cage comics. And I remember thinking, like, wow, this is really, this is good stuff. There's a lot to this. You can tell this is a Bronze Age, <laughs> you know, debut book. They're going to set you up so you know what, what the character is all about and what the series is all about. Well, it's an interestingly written book. Because I could easily have seen this, what's contained in this book, being dragged out for six issues and still being very, very entertaining. On the other hand, the way this is written here and paced in here is also really well done. It's not that I would say one way would be superior to the other, which usually some books we look at and we think, oh, it would be much better if it was decompressed a little bit. And other books we look at and we say they should tighten it up. I think this story is done well enough in this book that it works, but if they had dragged it out, there's enough information in there that they easily could have made it go much longer. Luke, was was this origin ever retold in a, any other locations, like drawn out or, or explained differently or updated? Uh, never. I don't think ever, it was ever done that I'm aware of with this detail. They do, they do touch on the origin 
there is a four-part storyline in um, in the 90s Cage book called The Power and the Cure, which is all about the Power Man process and other guys that have undergone it. And, and Luke actually undergoes it a second time, which is why he gets the strength upgrade at some point between the end of Power Man and Iron Fist and when most modern readers would be familiar with them. Mm. Uh, but they never really go into any more detail than this. There are some retcons around it, um, you know, and, and some, you know, additional retellings, but uh, nothing like, um, you know, like in, in Iron Man, they did it a couple of times where they told his origin again and they do a slight retcon to update it or change it around and they put the Mandarin in there at one point. You know, there was never anything like that for Luke Cage. This one kind of stands on its own as his, you know, kind of the definitive telling of his origin. Hmm. Now, the other thing. And the thing that... That plays... Oh, go ahead, Paul. I was going to say the other thing that, that struck me in this book was with the exception of Quirt and Rackham, who I really don't care at all for their character models and they are kind of uh to me stereotypical bad george tusca with the exceptions of the two of them in this book i really like the way this is drawn the way it's the story is told and i think some of that has to do with uh with the uh, billy graham's inking combined with tusca mm-hmm. and i think it's far superior than when billy graham drew it by himself or when george tusca was inked by like vinnie coletta which i think we're going to see later yeah I, well, thought, and, and, I thought it had a, a real moody feel to it, mm-hmm. and and I thought it was just very well done. Like I said, I, I don't like, I don't care for Court and Rackham. I don't like the way they're drawn. I just think they're they're, they're just typical George Tuska background characters. Usually, the characters that he draws that way aren't even name characters. But... Now you said the opening page is drawn by John Romita, right? No, the cover is drawn by John Romita. Oh, okay. Hmm. The splash page is Tuska. That's pretty good. Well, well, to I, me, I, it's it's pretty I, good, but when you does. compare it to the cover, it's, you know, it's, it, it it doesn't compare. Well, and 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 we've had the discussion on here before about George Tuska, and um, you know, I you know, I you're you're right. Tuska draws ugly people a lot of times because that's a lot of times the people he was tasked with drawing. You know, I always my my example I always go back to is you look at the um the 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 pre issue 100 era of Iron Man when uh, actually it was Archie Goodwin and George Tusca were doing that as well. What you look you see a lot of the board members of Stark Enterprises or the protesters outside or they'd all have they'd all look kind of like you see with Rackham and Quirk they'd have kind of almost caricature uh, type of look. In fact, uh, one of my favorite panels in this book if you go to page seven when um, when uh, Warden Stewart is uh, reading the Riot Act to uh, uh, to Rackham. You know, Rackham is uh, in so shocked, his eyes are bugged out of his head. He's dropped his cigar. He's dropped his drink. You know, it's it, you look. I look at that, and oh, I immediately see that as George Tusca. But you're right. I think having Billy Graham inking it helps stuff like that because it lets the more um, you know grotesque and cartoonish aspects of Tusca's art come out without being lost to the heavier inks that uh, Vinnie Coletta tends to use. I, I agree with you. I think this book is the art in it. I think is is very good. I mean, admittedly, I'm a Tusca fan, but the the storytelling and the you know even in the flashbacks and everything is just, everything is is very easy to understand and easy to follow. And it does. It has that kind of seedy underground what you'd expect a '70s black exploitation film to look like. You know, it's got that kind of grime. It's that layer of film on top of it because mm-hmm. that that was what they were going for. The term that I've seen used and that I've subscribed to for not only this book, but also some of the other uh, ilk from the uh, Marvel Bronze Age of the era, like Iron Fist and Master of Kung Fu, and um, is is urban surrealism, you know? 
it's it's an attempt at urban realism, but it's also a Marvel code book. So it's a little bizarre in itself. So it's, you know, it's surreal at the same time that it's attempting to be realistic. But uh, but even when he draws pretty people in this book, they look good. Reva looks good. A couple of times we see her on, uh, you know, page 13. We get a, a really nice, uh, you know, pimp hitman. I like that. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say without giving up my grade, which I won't do yet, uh, I would say this is as good as you get with George Tusca, in my opinion. And that isn't meant to be an insult because I do like the artwork in this book. Again, I'm not giving my grade yet, but I do like the artwork in this book. And uh, this is, to me, off the top of my head, this is his best. Mm. You know, maybe, maybe you know, you're a bigger fan than me. Maybe you could point to something that's better. But well, I, you know, I'm yeah. sorry. No, I was going to say I think from a um, a relative standpoint, you're absolutely right. This, this is this is George Tuska looking at his best here. This is a great example of it. And again, especially, and this is something, again, we talked about when we did the issue of Iron Man with Frankenstein's monster and the Dread Knight, that I've always been a fan of his storytelling. Page 18, when Cage is punching the wall, is just a great little sequence to the point that, again, back in the late 90s, Spike Lee had said that he always wanted to make a Luke Cage movie just so he could shoot this scene of Cage punching his way out of prison just because, no comment. You know, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm, I, that's that's what he said, you know. Be, you know. No, no, no. I'm just saying. Uh, you might see it soon. You're Again, right. I, I, I would I'll be frankly, that's not a spoiler because to me, if you do a Luke Cage series where you tell his origin and he doesn't punch his way out of the prison, you failed. I mean, that's like that's like I'm doing Spider Man's origin where he's you are failing, <laughs> you are stalling. I use that on my kids when they're when they're stalling at breakfast. You are stalling. They have no idea what I'm talking about, but you know. Yeah, but anyway, yes, I, I would be I would be disappointed if it didn't have it in there because it's such a I mean that that's such an, uh, an integral part of his origin. The idea of the uh, you know again not not to get too political, but of a, a black man in the 70s wrongfully committed uh, you know committed of a crime he or convicted of a crime he didn't commit, punching his way out of prison out of the stone walls of a prison. I mean that's mm -hmm. pretty potent. Even some, you know, forty plus years after it was published, some might say it's impotent. Oh wait, never mind. No, no, it's, it's the exact opposite of that. <laughs> There's a certain bit of potency. Why do you think Misty Knight calls him Buck all the time? <laughs> I almost don't know what to say. <laughs> Paul, speechless. Wow. I am without speech. Well, you know, it was it was one of those. Uh, I always read that because I remember when. Uh, I think it was uh, the Leylands were covering some Power Man and Iron Fist, and they, they talked about that, that Misty Knight kept referring to Luke Cage as Buck, and they thought, well, isn't that a, that, that's, that's a racial epithet, isn't it? And I, I'd always thought that in that context, it was assumed that that was a code-friendly uh, su uh, substitution for stud. It's like he's this giant, virile black guy walking around with his shirt unbuttoned to his navel, you know, with pecs for days. I mean, gee, you know, it's... You know, it's not exactly subtle here, you know. This is uh, what what what's going on with it. So, but again, maybe that's just my interpretation. But it, anyway, in in this book, like I said, it's there's not a. I mean, really, there's not much in the way of superheroism. It very much is the origin, like we said. The and but I think it it's still really enjoyable because it you know you get a lot of that. Uh, even though it's it's kind of melodramatic because it is the Bronze Age with the emotions of uh, you know being double crossed and Reva's death and all that. It it uh, it plays to us to a very uh, uh, you know solid foundation that you get with this sort of superhero pathos, and I think it does a really good job of it. And I think uh, Goodwin, 
uh, Goodwin is a you know he's a guy that he's he gets more credit now than I think he did maybe uh, in the last uh, you know in the 90s and the 2000s as a guy that told good stories and had had good ideas you know and and mm-hmm. I and I I believe that you are right from what I've read Paul that you know Roy Thomas kind of came up with the idea that hey we should do a black exploitation character but the origin and all that mostly came from from uh, from Goodwin and and again I'm uh, you know he, he seems that he doesn't get the credit of some of his contemporaries but almost like a, you know, just month in, month out, turning in, you know, good, solid stuff. And when he gets a chance to do an origin, something like this, I think he really gets to shine. Yeah, I, I think he did a great job with this. I, you know, all around, I enjoyed this story. I enjoyed it when I read it. When I, I, well, I mean, I guess I probably read this around 1975 or so. And uh, it hasn't lost any of its charm to me. And I've started a Luke Cage reread through. I'm, I'm only about five, five issues in so far, but I, I've just kind of started going through it again because because i'm enjoying it it's it's, it's no, this, rekindled a, an, an enjoyment of this character for me yeah let's see i'm trying to remember issue because issue two is diamondback again issue three is gideon mace issue four is black mariah no issue four is issue, the phantom oh is issue five black mariah yes okay yes yeah, so I, I, the phantom and black mariah and then after that you get uh you got you're coming up on everybody's favorite story with dr doom that was one of the first issues i covered on bins Yes, great, great story. <laughs> and you know what's funny is when that when that little that that panel from that page when he says, "Where's my money, honey?" When that started making the rounds on Facebook a few years ago, my friend Adam he called me. He goes, "Is that a real panel?" I said, "Yeah." You want to borrow the issue? <laughs> <laughs> now, what do, what do you think when they did this? I, I read this and I think they were inspired that Luke Cage is is James Brown. Any any thoughts? Hmm. Picture him from when he was in the Dirty Dozen. Oh, I was thinking. No, not okay. the singer. Well, you, well, you said Jim Brown. I'm going James Brown. Going, he's not going. Ah, I'm gonna punch myself out. I'm gonna punch out. Okay, yeah. Jim Brown. Excuse me. <laughs> okay, the famous running back. Yes, I would say Jim Brown or yeah. Shaft. As opposed to but say I... Richard Roundtree or somebody yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, you know, Cage doesn't have the the mustache like uh, like Richard Roundtree did. And uh, and the thing with the stuff with Jim Brown, especially when he's in prison, the way his haircut is and stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, um, uh, Rackham calls them militants. You know, that always makes you know as a as a pejorative. But yeah, I could I could see that the the that kind of from that era, especially. You know, that, that unfortunately that that is before my time, so I'm I'm operating on anecdotes and hidden uh, you know history. So I didn't get to experience that stuff firsthand. By the by, the time like I said by the time I was introduced to the character, him being, um, him being, uh, you know, a, a black character was not that it wasn't part of it because it was, and he still primarily fought other black characters like the um, the, the character the Bushmaster went on to be known as the Power Master, and then his henchman was Hardcore, and there was a bunch of other guys like that. But it wasn't it wasn't as um, uh, how do I want to put this front and center. Uh, consciously part of the book's DNA as it was here in the 70s. And you see it all through the book as it goes through up to, even after it becomes Power Man and Iron Fist. You know, um, it, it was Cage being a black man was a, such an important part of it that even by the end of the book, when uh, Jim Osley, um, a.k.a. Christopher Priest, took over, that, um, you know, it, it, it became very pronounced. And, you know, it, it's one of those things that it's it's tough because... You've got a bunch of, you know, to, to speak plainly, you've got a bunch of, of white artists 
doing this book in the early 70s. And to be fair, most of these guys were guys living in the city. They were progressive-minded. They were liberal types. So they were trying to do an accurate portrayal. They were trying to do it justice. They weren't trying to be ridiculous or uh, parody or anything like that. And parts, you know, not so much in this one, but, but we will see aspects that become almost self-parody, but they weren't intended that way. So you almost have to put yourself in the, the mindset of the time when you're reading a book like this. And this is true, again, I think for any Bronze Age book, you know, but, but these that, that were trying to be more socially self-conscious, I think it, it, it does require a little bit of effort when you're reading it, not just to like, oh, these, these idiots, look at they were writing. This is so, you know, so passe or, or whatever. Uh, so, but Goodwin does a good job of avoiding it. Like I said, the only kind of overt characters here are, um, you know, Court and uh, Rackham, and they're meant to be the stereotypical racist guards, you know, at a prison in Georgia for crying out loud. You don't get, you know, that's a little on the nose even for me. But, uh, but you know, I, I still think it works very well. And 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 like I said earlier at the top, I think this is a very cinematic type of origin. So it doesn't surprise me at all, like you were saying, Bill, that they kind of. Uh, you know, took it uh, verbatim, so to speak, for the uh, the series. Georgia, Georgia. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. And just There's... one little, one little, uh, or two little bits of trivia, real quick. And I know we're not. This is not a let's let Luke talk about Luke Cage for for an hour and a half. But I, one thing I always thought was funny is how much of this stuff in this origin, the characters in this book that would be would stick around because Noah Bernstein becomes an ongoing character for quite a long time in the book. Um, uh, the warden, uh, Stuart, his sons are the villains Stiletto and Discus. So Stiletto, oh, and, yeah, Stiletto initially shows up because he wants to get revenge because after Cage breaks out, you know, Warden Stuart is the one who takes it, who, who takes it on the nose because he let a convict escape, you know. So he wants revenge, and then his brother Discus joins up with him later. And, of course, Shades and Comanche would come back later to uh, to fight Power Man and Iron Fist later on in the series as well. So I just thought it was funny. All these characters that show up, they actually do a comeback later on as the book goes on. Because the book ran for 125 issues, so that's a lot of time to fill in spots. And uh, don't sell yourself short, Luke. You are here to, to wax poetic about, <laughs> about Luke Cage. That's why we invited you. So, well, I, know, that, but I, I, don't, I, I think that's cool. Well, Stiletto and Discus are two of my favorites, partially because I threw Discus in high school. And I always, you know, it's like throwing a Discus at somebody. That would hurt like hell, you know? So I think um, Paul throws out Discus. <laughs> Once again, I don't know what to say. Yeah. <laughs> I have no response. No respect. Uh, no, no respect, I tell no you. Respect. Uh. All right, so we ready to rate this? Because we got two more books to cover. Yep. So my book, uh, the only failing I have for the cover, again, is showing cards and dice is more evocative of Vegas than it is Manhattan. But oh, other it could be that, back, 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 back room illegal gambling, you know? Yeah, that, that, that's, was there, was there any of that in this book? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, that's that's my only criticism of it, but it's, it's a minor criticism because I think the cover is... Very cool. I think it's iconic, and I think it's an A. The interior art, as I said, I think Billy Graham does complement George Tusco well, for the most part. And I'm I'm willing to temper some of my criticism of Tusca to say that with a strong anchor who could just kind of clean up his artwork a little bit, I think I would like him a lot more. 
So, and I, but I think this is about as good as it gets for him, as I also said. So I'm going to give the interior art a B, and I'm almost tempted to say a B plus. The story, I think, is really, really well done. Uh, like I said, it could it could have been drawn out over six issues, but the fact that it was done in one doesn't make you feel like you're missing out on anything. So I'm going to say an A for the story t- as well, and I'm going to give the book overall an A minus. In fact, you know what? I'm I'm changing. I am going to go B plus on the interior art, but I'm going to stay with the A minus overall. All right, Bill, you want to go? or You want me to go? Uh, I'll go. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes, to cover. I, uh, well, you know, I'm surprised at you, Paul. Are you? Yes, because <laughs> what's what's the two of the things that you don't like the most? A cover that's blocked off. That's true. And a color with and and a cover with solid colors. Now, granted, it's in a red tinge to make it look like a red light district, but uh, usually that's something that you're on the nitpick side for. But that being said, I too will give this cover an A. Um, I like the opening splash too. I think uh, the lady next to the dance uh, sign there. It's pretty, pretty, uh, it's pretty well built. I'll just say, got a nice look to her. It's a very nice looking George Tuska lady. Would you say like a brick type of house, perhaps? Ow! <laughs> Is she in fact mighty mighty? Let it all hang out. <laughs> um, and this is the first time I've read this, so having seen particular the particular origin episode. This is very true to that, and uh, it's nice to see this different version of it here. Um, the interior art, yeah, aside from the caricatures of, of the two guards, it's they're well-drawn and look pretty damn good. So I'm going to give the interior art a B plus, and the story, you know, this is, again, same. This so much of this is in that other, uh, other episode, and I can't wait until you you actually watch it. Uh, Luke, so we can get your reaction. So I'm gonna give it a, uh, I'm gonna give it an A as well. So that's, I, I'm, I'm also probably at like an A minus for this one. Um, I think this is gonna be redundant for our listeners, but I'm gonna give the cover a flat out A because you know, especially as as we talk about covers here on Back to the Bins, this to me is the single most iconic Luke Cage cover we've ever had of all of his, all the issues of. You know, Hero for Hire slash Power Man slash Power Man and Iron Fist, his own series, Heroes for Hire, all the Avengers series, all of that. that, To me, this is the iconic Luke Cage cover, you know, period, end of line. You know, so A, right there on the cover. The interior art, I I like George Tuska, even though I recognize that his, his stuff is very quirky. Uh, I'm I'm leaning towards an A minus, but I think it's probably more fair and more objective to say B plus. And uh, because, like I said, it, it is good, but it is it is still have its quirks to it. And the story to me is an A. Like I said, I thought I always thought the Cage had one of the best in a in a universe replete with excellent origins. I always thought Luke Cage had one of the best that got overlooked because he wasn't a hero on the level of say you know, Spider-Man or uh, Iron Man or Captain America. But I think his origin is fantastic. Um, and I think, like I said, it, it holds up well. It doesn't need to be retold or retconned because it's it's just such a strong origin. And I, and I like that we get, like I said before, the two, the two sides of him. We get to learn about Carl Lucas, the man, 
that ends up in at Seagate and then the man that leaves Seagate who becomes Luke Cage, the hero for hire. So story in A and I'm going to give the book an A minus as well. I think it's just a fantastic book. It's it's a great way to kick off the series. I tell you what, if I'm a kid in 1972, when I buy this off the stands, you better believe I'm looking for number two when Cage is going to hopefully get Ew. his hands on. Well, my number two, you know, oh, dude. We got a radio. We got a radio commercial up here with a woman saying, "My number two doesn't look like a number two. Is there a number three? I'm like, who wants to hear this on their morning commute? <laughs> who does number two work for? Oh, sorry. You tell that to her. But anyway, yes, you'd be looking for the second issue. See what I did there, where uh, where Cage would get his hands on on Diamondback for all the crap that that his uh, quote unquote friend put him through for all this. So excellent comic. All right, that said, moving on to our second issue. Uh, I guess if we're going to go chronological, that will be yours, Luke. Yes, it will. And uh, I almost brought issue number 18, uh, which is funny because, um, uh, Paul, you were saying number 20, which was the second issue with uh, with uh, Cottonmouth. Issue 18 features Luke fighting Steeplejack and teases Cottonmouth at the end. But uh, I decided instead to go with uh, Luke Cage Power Man number 28, and this is um, cover dated December 1975. And the reason why I went with this is because, first off, it features one of my favorite uh, villains from Luke Cage's uh, rogues gallery, which is actually quite extensive because he fought a lot of his own villains because he didn't interact that much with the Marvel Universe at large. But I also chose it because when you guys were doing your retrospective on 1975, you specifically made fun of this cover. Uh, because the villain this time out is Cockroach Hamilton. And uh, we see on the cover where um, it, uh, we see uh, there Luke and, and Cockroach Hamilton are standing in front of a billboard, and uh, Cockroach is shooting Cage with his six-barrel shotgun nicknamed Josh. <laughs> he says, this time you've really bought a cage. The day you bug the cockroaches, the day you die. And it says, a new kind of Luke Cage thrower as Times Square becomes an arena of death. The man who killed Manhattan. So... I'm I'm gonna I'm not gonna lie I'm gonna shoot with you guys when you guys were on that episode making fun of Cockroach Hamilton I was literally yelling at the speakers in my car because Cockroach Hamilton is awesome and and I'm not being facetious and I'm not being ironic Cockroach Hamilton is the man uh, or the cockroach depending on how you want to look at it yeah cockroach uh, oh. but no no he's well he's not he's not Hispanic so he's not El Cucaracha you know which is ah. what you thought he was talking about. Um, Cage, like I said, he mostly fought mostly fought a lot of uh, a lot of other uh, black characters. He did fight one Latino character whose name was Senor Suerte, <laughs> which translates to Mister Luck. And Mister Luck had a suit where he could spin a dial and it would electrify either his right hand or his left hand. And if he shook your hand with his right hand and and he killed you, he would then change his name to Senor Muerte or Mister <laughs> Death. The Senor Suerte and Senor Muerte are the same guy, and in fact, a pair of brothers have both been Senor Suerte and Senor Muerte. But he's dead at this point. He dies way back in like issue ten or something. So um, we're instead going to look at, at this one, and uh, we open so up. <laughs> if he was pretty smooth, would he be Senor Suave? Senor Suave. Well, that, well, that actually connects with your illegal gambling operation because that was Senor Suerte's deal. Was he ran an illegal casino? So. See, <laughs> no prize for me. Yep. Uh, so our our uh, our story, even though the cover says the man who killed Manhattan, our story is entitled "The Man Who Killed Jiminy Cricket." 
The writer is Don McGregor. The artists are George Tusca and Vinny Coletta. Um, uh, Petra Goldberg is the colorist. Uh, David H., the letterer. Marv Wolfman is the editor. And our story opens in Manhattan at Broadway and Times Square at 2 a.m. as uh, Luke Cage is busting out of a one of the a smoking or a ring of smoke smoking billboard and uh, is confronting Cockroach Hamilton, who is wearing a trench coat and a pimp hat and his uh, is always present uh, mirrored sunglasses and is taking a shot at him with Josh. And Josh is, as I described, a six-barreled sawed-off shotgun. Uh, that Cockroach Hamilton talks to as if it's his pal and refers to by name exclusively. And uh, there's some really great um, kind of flavor text here from McGregor. As he says, Manhattan at Broadway and Times Square, 2 a.m., the restless hour when it seems there's never and it was anything called dawn. The junkies nod on the sidewalks, murmuring their in slang. The hustlers become a bit more desperate to make their hit for the night. The broken people, the dreamless dreamers, stagger about their eyes the color of the neon signs they pass as they seek a subway stairwell for a night's lodgings. And the Winston sign still puffs its steam into the soot-gray sky, despite the fact that Luke Cage comes battering through it. For Cage, the night has just begun, but the man with the six-barreled shotgun is determined to end it abruptly. And uh, so Cage and uh, Hamilton tussle on the roof, and we see that uh, K- that Hamilton is tough enough to take a punch from Cage and uh, still standing. And he says that uh, he's not down, he's still holding on to Josh, and that his name is the Roach, tough guy, Cockroach Hamilton. And you made, a, made yourself a bad mistake buttoning in on this kill, because Josh and I just put you on our list. And uh, so Cage rushes at cockroach and he runs right down the barrel of josh and uh cockroach pulls the trigger and blasts him at point blank range with all six barrels and it sends cage uh crashing almost over the side of the building down to the street below uh only by grabbing one, one uh, basically handhold on the building does he save himself from crashing down onto uh, uh, Times Square below. But uh, the target of the assassination is still up on the billboard, and he screams. His name is Harry Wentworth, and he said, I'm the guy your boss made the deal with, your contact. And so he's trying to plead for his life and figure out why he's being targeted. Cockroach Hamilton doesn't doesn't care. He says, you want to say hi to Josh before he says goodbye to you? And he just blasts him with the shotgun and sends his... Uh, uh, you know, uh, sh- shot-ridden carcass flying over the edge, crashing into the uh, awning below, and then down as everybody looks on. In fact, there's a, you know, some gallows humor as a, you know, a, 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 a uh, one guy makes a, a joke about uh, this ain't the kind of way to get people to recruit for the Navy. I may be thinking you, Doctor Bill. You know, oh, I'm yeah. not sure how seeing a guy, a dead guy, getting flung off a building is recruiting for the Navy. But <laughs> oh, I, I thought maybe you meant the guy in the gay pirate outfit <laughs> making the comment. Yes, but uh, so uh, the police rushed onto the roof right after uh, uh, after Cockroach makes his escape in the tussle and Wentworth hits the floor, and they are led by Detective Chase. And Chase is a hard-boiled guy despite his paisley uh, flowered shirt and uh, orange court coat. But it's the 70s, you know, you do what you got to do. And so he uh, he kind of gives Cage uh, a hard time about it. And Cage gives it to him right back. And he said that uh, if you check below, the guy was also blasted away by that shotgun, the same one that tore my threads up. And uh, Chase is not really impressed, but he's willing to listen to Cage because, you know, they, he's he's seen some horrible stuff in, as a detective in uh, New York in the 70s. So he's willing to give Cage a shot because he thinks he might be on the level. So the two of them talk and they say that... Uh, 
And actually, there's actually a really nice bit of continuity here because he says that uh, Chase tells him that since he's opened his office, Cage has been around four dead bodies. And in fact, quite a few of Cage's villains do end up dead at the end of their stories, but not at Cage's hands. It's a typical type of Marvel thing where they become dead because of their own stupidity. But there, he, a lot of dead people were around Cage at this time. So, so, um, so Chase and uh, Cage agree to uh, that. Uh, that he says that come out into the precinct sometime. And we'll talk about the facts of life and their uh, exchange information. That um, uh, that Charlton Grunge, who's the owner of Adonis Chemical, who was uh, Wentworth's boss, and that they found out that uh, that Cage was hired to find out by by Grunge to see who was stealing and selling information about the stuff that Adonis Chemical was doing, and that led him here, which is what led to the confrontation and Wentworth getting killed. So Cage goes back to his office to try and sort things out. He runs into uh, D.W. Griffith, who was the manager of the Gem Theater that Luke's office is above. Uh, Luke once again is thwarted by the drink machine at the Gem Theater, which was an ongoing gag that the drink machine never worked, yet he still kept trying. Uh, so um, Cage is, uh, he's, his shoulder is still hurting where he got a shot, he got shot by Josh. So he takes the, uh, uh, he gets on the subway train and he heads uh, uptown into uh, Harlem to go visit with Dr. Noah Bernstein. And Bernstein has been set up there in a clinic along with uh, Claire Templeton, who is not in this uh, in this issue, but is Luke's ongoing love interest at this time. Uh, so as uh, Cage goes into the temp, uh, into the uh, into the clinic, we see that. Uh, Dr. Bernstein was visited by some strange shadowy figure outside, but that's a story for another time. As he is inside, uh, attending to a young boy whose mother has brought him in, and the kid uh, seems very happy to, to meet Power Man. And he says, I see you around. You ain't afraid of nothing, are you? And uh, so with, uh, with the kid looking on, Dr. Bernstein has to set Luke's shoulder. And uh, Noah seems to be taking a good deal of uh, enjoyment out of putting Cage through all this pain. And, if you, and th this goes back to some of the other stuff that Bernstein gets into a lot of scrapes because of Cage um, at this, in this era of the book. So they get his, uh, his shoulder reset. Uh, despite the uh, you know the complications from Cage's size and steel hard skin, and uh, he is on the mend. So the next day, Cage goes to go see uh, Harry, uh, see Grunge at uh, Adonis Chemical, and he is not happy with him. And he find and he basically confronts him, saying that the the shipment concerns canisters of gas. It's a gas that's so deadly that if we a leak were to happen and contaminate the air half the population would be infected with lung cancer and that he is transporting this through Manhattan in unmarked trucks in the middle of the day. And this was the information that Wentworth was selling out. So uh, Grunge is uh, is grabbed by Cage and thrown into a uh, chair, which shatters the chair. And Grunge is not impressed. And he gets, uh, you know, all kind of high and mighty with him. But uh, Cage reads him the, the riot act about how uh, Adonis Chemical puts on this good image and uh, that they, they want to show, sponsor a cleanup and all this stuff, but ultimately they're they're just another greedy corporation out to do whatever they can and the consequences be damned. Um, and uh, Grunge, you know, uh, throws it right back in his face 
and then uh, eventually makes a very ill-fated decision and takes a swing at Cage. And so Cage decks him with a left cross that sends him flying over his desk and into and partially through the wall. <laughs> so, so much for Mr. Grunge. He'll have a headache for the rest of his life now. Uh, so later that day, uh, Cage is down by the Harlem River trying to find out more information. He is jumped and attacked by a series of goons. And uh, Cage makes, uh, you know, they don't really have much they can do to Cage. He hits one guy with a great bit of onomatopoeia that says crack. And again, it's like this dude is, he's going to have a hard time explaining this at the hospital. Um, so that, that goes on until Cockroach Hamilton pops up and he has Josh aimed right at Cage's face. And you think, oh, he's going to blow Cage's face off. Well, not so, because he's got one barrel loaded with a gas canister and he gasses Cage and knocks him unconscious. And uh, one of the goons says, let me at him, Roach. I'm going to bust his kneecaps for him. Let him let him make some lip about that. And Ham Hamilton's youth says, you ain't going to do nothing of the kind. The man's gotten himself out of line. And he's got more to worry about than his kneecaps, a lot more. And so Cage awakens, and he is now in a very unusual predicament as he is tied up underneath the Harlem River Bridge. And he is tied up right at the uh, junction point where the bridge will split to let a tugboat pass. And lo, what's coming down the Harlem River? It's a tugboat. And he says, the tugboat horn intrudes upon his thoughts insistently, and there is another sound, the grinding of gears. The bridge is about to open to let the boat pass through, and the full implication of the trap hits Cage. His legs are manacled to one half of the bridge, his wrist to the other. When the drawbridge begins to rise, it will tear him in half. And that is where our story ends to be continued in the next issue, which will also introduce Cockroach Hamilton's boss, Piranha Jones. Uh, so, like I said, I, I picked this one because in a lot of ways, this is very typical of Luke Cage's stories from this era. You know, he's taking on a job. Not He doesn't always have the most savory of clients that are willing to pay him. But ultimately, Luke wants to do the right thing. So even though his clients are maybe asking him to do something for their own greedy reasons, he's going to look into it and do the heroic thing out of it. I also like that uh, this deals a lot with what I said earlier, the urban surrealism. I mean, the whole sequence at the beginning uh, in Times Square with, uh, you know, Hamilton gunning down Wentworth and then people joking about his body. And there's there are people buying, you know, buying pretzels and just kind of gawking at it as the police are checking him out and all that. It's it's very cynical. It's very much in the vein of the black exploitation films that it was taking inspiration from. And, uh, and I, and again, I really do like cockroach Hamilton. He's the hitman. He's got a, this ridiculous, ridiculous pimps outfit, but it's all intentional. And his, his weapon of choice seems kind of ridiculous, but if you, you know, it's six sawed off shotguns on one trigger. So that is enough to, to put a hurting on Luke Cage. That's gotta be a pretty powerful weapon. And, uh, He's uh, and so he's he's a favorite of mine and and so I, I said even though it ends on a cliffhanger it's not a done in one I really like this issue and I thought it's a lot of fun. What did you guys think? I tend to agree with you and I think you hit it on the head when you said how this is pretty much typical for the stories of the of the era. I think you know you picked one that kind of has that whole feel to it. So I think that was, that was a cool idea and uh, it's just I don't know you know like I said when I was reading these. As a as a you know young teenager, I didn't think of it as black exploitation because I really didn't know what black exploitation was. So mm -hmm. I was just reading it to to get a good story, and I enjoyed reading them. But when you look at it with an idea of what that was, you know, and I mean, 
just you know villains named Piranha Jones and that type of thing. It's totally cockroach <laughs> Hamilton. It's it's totally in with that. Uh, but just the same, it's it it. I I think they they're good solid stories on their own behalf as well. So I enjoyed this. I do see a fairly significant difference uh, with Vinnie Coletta inking yep. George Tusca, and it's not a it's not a difference for the better. Mm. So. You know, it, it loses some of its feel. The uh, the the inking by Billy Graham had had a, like a real gritty feel to it. This this is a little bit more slick and a little bit less detailed, and I, I think it suffers slightly for that. It, it it almost comes off as just you know nothing special. Whereas that first issue, you know, really, and they might have spent extra time on it because it was the first issue, but. It, it almost the inking almost has a rushed feel, which is you know true to Vinnie Coletta's reputation. That's that's the biggest point where this story fails, as far as I'm concerned. I don't think the Tusca layouts are bad. I think his storytelling is pretty solid. I don't think we see any of the Tusca stereotypes, although his uh, you know cockroach is looking a little you know not a particularly good looking man. Let me just put it that yeah. way. Yeah, but I, don't I think, think his nose has been it. broken a few times. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, so, I mean, so when, I, when I look at this spot. one, I put most of my artistic criticism on the inking. I think it could have been much better if it had been inked with a little bit more care. Yeah. What did you think, Bill? So is you said Cottonmouth is teased in here. Is he the guy that's following Luke? No, no, I, I'm, no. Cottonmouth was teased in the issue I didn't bring. The oh. guy that is outside of the uh, the clinic on what page is that? On page uh, sixteen. That is Spear. And Spear and his brother, the Mangler, have it in for Dr. Bernstein, and they will be menacing Dr. Bernstein and Luke Cage in, few, in issues that come after this. Mm. And ironically, in the current Power Man and Iron Fist series, um, there is, right now, they are doing a pseudo-tie-in to Civil War II, not to get too, uh, too modern here on Back to the Bins, but um, part of it involves a group of um, overzealous vigilantes who get the software that lets them supposedly predict the future and see who is going to commit criminals and uh, and you know cross references it with uh, with a criminal database. That's so what they, Civil War Two is about. Civil War Two is actually about that Captain Marvel. They have a new Inhuman who can see the future, uh, and so they're trying to stop crimes. They're like they're minority reporting it basically. Really? Oh, oh. yes. Okay. But and 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 in the first in the first issue of that tie-in, Luke and Danny say, "I don't want to I don't want to fight in this." Do you? No. Okay, we'll just ignore it then. And they ignore it and they go on and do their own thing. But basically, this this overzealous group of vigilantes is, you know, uh, taking in former and reformed criminals, including a lot of Cage's old rogues gallery. And so their families and some of the criminals that are have not been captured hire Luke and Danny to look into it. And two of the guys that help that that hire them are Cockroach Hamilton and Spear. So they are hmm. still kind of kicking around in the modern. And Cockroach Hamilton looks exactly the same. So he looks, but now it now it's ridiculous. Back in the seventies, it was supposed to be, <laughs> you know, a little ridiculous, but kind of you know a sign of the times. Now he's just like he's like, and he still talks the same way. He still acts the same. way. He has the same gun, you know, and he's still he's still a killer for hire. He's still doing work. And he still thinks of himself as being, you know, he calls Luke Cage Power Man all the time, even though he says, Luke constantly says, don't call me Power Man, you know? So it's 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 funny, but Cockroach Hamilton and, and Spear and the Mangler are still kicking around along with 
um, you know, the, the, the Gamecock and a few of the other villains from that era that are big Ben Donovan is in there. His son, little Ben Donovan is one of the kids that hires him. But, um, anyway, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, Cockroach Hamilton still kicking around now, still shooting people with a shotgun. <laughs> so and he's supposed to be grotesque. You know, he's almost like a Dick Tracy villain, you know? Yeah. Chester Gould, but he created all the starting with the blank, and then you got like you know Big Boy Caprice and Flat Top and Prune Face, uh, <laughs> you know, and BBIs. They they called them the grotesque because they were ridiculous and bizarre looking, and that's I always thought that's kind of like what a lot of these guys what they were going for is they were gangsters and you know uh, racketeers and hitmen, but they they looked crazy and ridiculous, which is what kind of made them endearing. You know, I mean, in the on on page one, I mean, how tall is Hamilton? He's like four feet tall, you know. But it's like he's the cockroach. Of course, he should be small, you know. I'm am down with that. I'm that's not a complaint. I'm okay with it. <laughs> it's like a like a like a crumb character. Yeah, our crumb a little bit. Yeah, goes to but, the early uh, story right there. The uh, the doc looks like a buff Ray Bradbury. <laughs> I, I, you know. He does kind of look like Ray Bradbury. Especially when they're all talking with, with when he's behind the counter and he's kind of leaning there and Luke's talking uh, at the bottom of page uh, of 17. Yeah. It's like, you know, oh, let me tell you a story, kid. Yeah. He's going he's gonna to, well, one time Ray Harryhausen and I. You know. <laughs> <laughs> look over there, Luke. Let me yank your arm out. <laughs> ah! I love the crazy grin on page 18, panel 4. Cage trying to put on a happy face for the kid. You know he's just terrifying that kid <laughs> even more. Yeah, it's not hurt at all. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> and doesn't take the tiara off. Why would you? Why would you ever take that tiara off? Well, you know what's funny is that believe we kind of glossed over this, but for the the listen for our lovely listeners, the tiara actually does serve a purpose at the beginning of uh, Luke Cage here for hire number one when we see him in prison Luke has short hair by the time he gets back to New York his hair has started to grow longer and it's starting to come into an afro so he keeps the tiara from the escape artist costume that he buys from the costume shop because he says he wants to keep his hair longer to help disguise who he is so people won't recognize him and the tiara helps keep it out of his face and keeps it up out of his eyes so the tiara not just fashionable but functional as well yeah, I'm not a big fan of hair in my face, so I think I may get a tiara. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. it's the only way to go. You either get a tiara or you start going bald like I am. Oh, God, i got to get a tiara then. <laughs> if those are the choices. Those are yeah. my choice. Uh, I saw a picture but... of myself from like 10 years ago. I just started crying. I'm like, I had so much hair. <laughs> but there was hair then. There was hair. Yeah. It's going to be hair. Long, beautiful hair. Give me a head with hair. Um... So the the whole smoking sign reminded me of the Michael J. Fox movie with uh, ah what's his name? Secret of My Success. James Wood. Where he played? No, no. Where he played? Where he was an actor who's yeah he was an actor who was following James Woods and he was studying a cop and there's there's a there's a there's a fight scene. I don't know if it's in Times Square. But there's a but there's a fight scene with the main villain, and they're on a sign where it's it's like Michael J. Fox's character with a cigar or something, and it's like this big moving um, marquee sign. Mm. You guys know the movie I'm talking about? I know I can't I, remember the name of it off the top of my yeah. head, uh, and I'm too lazy to look it up on IMDb right now. 
and the, I can't remember who played the head villain. Man, I guess I'll have to look it up. It's funny, like this is to me, this is typical for for Luke Cage from this era, but it doesn't really spark a lot of conversation for some reason. <laughs> no, it it doesn't because I I think because it's 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 in a lot of ways a very typical Marvel bronze book. You yes, know, bronze that's age true. Book. We've we've got a fight. We've got downtime where we do character development. We've got a rising action of something that is touching on a social consciousness issue. And then we've got a little bit of action, then a cliffhanger. You know, it's, it's a hard a very part one of a two part Marvel. I mean, you, you can change some of the details and this is Daredevil or Captain America or Iron Man, you know, or Spider-Man. Which is one of the negatives of the Marvel Bronze Ages because, you know, often the characters were interchangeable and. I, I definitely preferred it when they give them their own personality, their own motivation. On the other hand, if they, when they do that, sometimes it's hard to make them all heroic. Yeah. You know, it, it's you start giving them foibles, and, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, Marvel's fallen under so much criticism for with Tony Stark in that, you know, you know everybody's like, oh, you turned him into an ass. And meanwhile, that's an effort to give him a different personality and I can kind of go along with the criticism because I do want my heroes to be heroic, but I also can understand why they're trying to just give him some different motivations than everybody else or, you know, give him a different personality than everybody else. And the ironic thing is once the uh, first Iron Man movie came out, then they started writing everybody like Tony Stark from the movies. Yeah. Pretty snarky with the quick, quippy comebacks on everything. Yeah, which is, is does a disservice, you know. But... Uh... Yeah, and yeah, and and I agree with that. I mean, this this is Cage is not at his. He is mercantile here because he's he's clearly taking Adonis Chemicals' money, and he does need the money because DW tells him that the uh, he wants to raise the rent on the <laughs> the apartment over the Gem Theater, which is a dive. We don't see it this issue, but it is an absolute dive. And the front, and you know that like the joke on Alias Jessica Jones where her door keeps getting damaged. Right. Kind of originated here because Luke's door gets damaged all the time. <laughs> he's always having to complain about he has to pay to replace it. Um, Cage whining about money is kind of a, a running gag in the series, no matter who's writing it. Um, there's a storyline that takes place, I want to say, in the late 30s, maybe even the early 40s, um, where he fights uh, the Baron and Big Brother. And Big Brother's um, cohort is uh, the Cheshire Cat. And the two of them are two villains that are kind of fighting each other, and Luke is kind of fight in the middle fighting both of them. And he's, I want to say he's fighting the Baron, and the Baron's got like a like robot planes or something shooting at him, and his shirt gets destroyed. And he says, man, I never have any luck. Not since I found that place that sells these yellow shirts so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, appropriate, but... Uh... Yeah, like I said, it, it doesn't spark a lot of conversation, I don't think, because it's it's a very straightforward book. I mean, there's a lot of nice little touches here. Um, on on page 15, when Cage is heading back to the gem, he's uh, there's still you know McGregor's still talking about 42nd Street, and you almost get the feeling that you know if you read um, what is it the I think it's the uh, the untold story of Marvel Comics, they talk about like Jim Starlin and Steve Englehart and Steve Gerber and some of those other guys. They would just you know they would go out and just walk the streets sometimes, and wherever they ended up in New York, they ended up, and that's how certain you know they they would get inspiration to use use certain areas or you know they'd, they'd end up in a, a cinema showing a honk a, a hong kong chop movie and that was why they wanted to do 
kung fu stories or you know jim starlin would be on some you know pharmaceutical substance and start talking about you know causality in the universe and all that um so you almost get the feeling that mcgregor might have might have done some of this he talks about how uh you know the the um the uh where is it? it's it's in it where is it where he talks about uh the people in the sub hobbling in the subway stations how uh you know the uh, the the hustlers and the 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 pimps and the the street preacher and all that it's a lot of a lot of new york in this a lot of especially 70s you know new york urban urban hell death wish style manhattan <laughs> in this in a lot of ways although you know uh, i i would pay to see paul kersey fight Ch- uh, cockroach hamilton personally <laughs> so why they call this the man who killed jiminy cricket i have no idea okay uh, just... Well, you know, it's uh, the guy. I, the only thing I guess is that you know, uh, what's his name, Wentworth. He's kind of like the how, conscious. Well, yeah. he's like, well, how did I get here? You know, what did I? Uh, uh, he goes, uh, uh, look, I was just looking for a way to get ahead. I mean, to help pay the blasted car insurance, those monster con ad bills, give myself a chance to see how my life got to this. And you know, Hamilton don't care. Cockroach Hamilton don't give a shit. You know, just. <laughs> and you may ask yourself, my God, what have I done? <laughs> I think, uh, the, you know, and, uh, cricket, you know. The man who the killed movie. Jiminy Cricket was, was Pinocchio. Didn't Pinocchio smash him with a hammer in the original story? Maybe that was Geppetto. <clears throat> Damn bug, smack. Yeah. Uh, the movie I was thinking of is The Hard Way. Ah. With Michael J. Fox. The storyline is Nick Lang is a famous Hollywood actor well known for his action movies. For his next movie, he needs to he needs the proper motivation and inspiration for his role. Thus, he teams up with the reluctant New York policeman, Lieutenant John Moss, played by John, James Woods. Now, not only does he have to put up with Nick, who's laborious and out of touch with realities, but he also has to catch a cold-blooded murderer, who's played by Stephen Lang as the party crasher. And he had, like, his hair was dyed white. He looked like uh, one of the guys from U2. The one of the not the is it no it's not the drummer maybe it is a drummer I don't know Edge no not Edge not Edge and Bono one of the other two guys <laughs> not Edge but Christian one half of former World Tag Team Champions Edge and Christian no not that Edge and Christian no. I was having a conversation once and I said yeah Edge was in Highlander Endgame and this person was arguing yeah, he was. with they were arguing and arguing like he was in the damn movie it's like no he wasn't it yes, turns he out was. I was talking I was talking about Adam Edge Copeland, former WWE World Heavyweight right. Champion. And they were oh. talking about The Edge from U2. Mm. And I said, well, okay, well, I'll grant you that. The Edge was not a right. <laughs> Just like how Sting the singer has to pay Sting the wrestler, you know, for rights to use the name. That's a shoot, by the way. Oh, really? Huh. Yes, yeah, Sting had it before Sting. So. so Sting got stung by Sting. Sting got stung by Sting, yes. And in nice. fact, if Sting the singer ever starts painting his face and going, "Woo!" you know, he'll have to really amp the payments every month. But again, nah. that's neither here nor there. But <laughs> well, if he goes "woo," then he's got to pay Ric Flair. Well, what you didn't see because you weren't looking at the microphone is I put my hands up and did the I, singer. I, I visualize it as Ric Flair going "woo." Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Flair uh, and Sting did fight each other enough times, you know. Uh oh, we veered into wrestling talk. Yeah, which which goes target. well with it goes well with with, with Power Man. Luke yeah. Cage would make a great wrestler. He could have joined the, what is it, the, the Unlimited was, Wrestling Federation. Yeah, was he ever in that? Not that I know of. I don't hmm. think he was. That was D Man was in there, wasn't he? D Man. D Man was in there. The the thing. Uh, armadillo. 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 Come on and rock me, Armadillo. Come on and rock me, Armadillo. 
Did Armadillo ever team up with Porcupine? Because I always thought those two guys would be like the perfect team. Would they just like roll around? Yeah, no, who could touch them? Armadillo could just roll you over. Porcupine had the spines on his suit. And put Gamecock in there too. You had all three of them, you know? And Black Talon? Oh, wait. Black that's, Talon. that's similar to Black what they Talon. did in, uh, in Modox 11. They had characters yeah. of that. Oh, yeah. Ilk. Yeah, that, that's true. You know, I actually have that series. There, there was, um, I say there was, there was an Infinity tie-in called The Heist, where it was, it was Blizzard and Titanium. It was a bunch of like, it was a bunch of Iron Man villains all got together while Infinity was going on, and all the Avengers were off planet. They were going to go steal Iron Man's armor, <laughs> and it turns out like Titanium Man was like a Kree spy or something, and they were stealing it for the Kree. That's what it basically was there, so Blizzard could become an Inhuman. Now let me ask you this, okay? Okay, the Inhumans, when, when they released the Terrigen bomb and they released the Terrigen mists all over the planet, everybody who was a latent Inhuman goes into Terrigenesis, right? Mm-hmm. And they all come out with whatever power they end up with. Terrigenesis! Sorry. Terrigenesis! But, uh... Hey, lady, the Terrigenesis, I... But, uh... Terrigenesis okay, so every- forbidden! Oh, sorry. Wait, you're making it easy for Luke to get this sentence out, huh? It is forbidden, but uh, the uh, so everybody gets whatever power they get, right? And the 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 Inhumans' powers pretty much are random. You know, you could end up being cool and not, not being if, able to talk. Not if you watch Agents of Shield, it's not right. But this, well, that's what I'm saying. But this, this, I, like I said, this was in the comics. I don't know if this is the way they do it. But Donnie Gill, who's the second Blizzard, right? after Armand Shanka, who was Jack Frost and then became the Blizzard, okay, he has no powers. He is the Blizzard because his suit generates intense cold, okay? He's just a normal schlub dude. He undergoes terogenesis and then wakes up and now has ice powers. Isn't can, that convenient? I was going to say, how convenient. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, this is cool. I don't have to change my code name. What? You should have gotten, like, lava powers or something. And then Actually, still called himself the wasn't that the, wasn't on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., wasn't that the name of the guy that got the yeah. blizzard powers, Donnie yeah. Gill? Yeah, the kid. Yeah, Donnie Gill yeah. was the kid who got the, the cold powers, yeah. Yeah. But hmm. but that kid wasn't a supervillain before that using a no, cold suit. No, <laughs> Correct. So mm. that, that to me was just like, really? Because I thought, I thought, oh, okay, they'll turn Blizzard in, into somebody else. No, he's still the Blizzard. <laughs> I wish I had cold powers. I would use my that's, powers for it, good. <laughs> yeah, you, you'd keep cold cuts cold on at picnics. Yeah, but then it would make my drinks cold. Damn it. Yeah. Well, did you, well, you, you, did I tell you about uh, what I'm doing with, uh, with, with uh, sandwich meat? Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hey, this given, is a family show. No, no, no! I, I, for my for my diet, I've I've given up sandwich meat. I'm quitting cold turkey. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That was uh, that was that was just an amazing joke, and you just didn't get it. I'm sorry. You know. You're making me hungry. <laughs> Aren't we always? Just look. All at right. Me. Well, let, let's let's rate this book instead of talking about cold cuts. Because mm-hmm. damn it, I am. Um, it okay. makes me want to have. If if I was a comic book writer right now, I would be creating a supervillain named Mortadella. <laughs> the death meat. Does he sling his salami and sausages around? Maybe. And with deadly precision? He could uh, he could he team could... up with the con- he could team up with Condiment King from Batman the Animated Series. <laughs> he could fling a Vienna sausage like nobody. <laughs> 
I think if if, they, if somebody writing Luke Cage in the 1970s had heard me say that, you might have seen Mortadella on uh, yeah <laughs> as a villain in that series. I mean, th- this is the same company that did have Jesus Christ uh, guest starring in Ghost Rider, you know. Except it wasn't actually Jesus Christ because uh, whoever was writing it left the book before they finished it. But anyway, um, I still think he should have hung around. If he had hung around long enough, I think we all know Jesus Christ would have joined the Avengers. But uh, they call him Captain Jesus or something, maybe I don't know. But the, before Jesus. I before I before I offend any other uh, any other uh, members of the faith here, let's rate the book. So cover. I like the cover because I think it's real dynamic with Hamilton shooting Cage and Cage coming at us, but Cage's anatomy is kind of wonky because um, I'm guessing he's he's shot and his head and shoulders are kind of leaning forward, but the angle looks kind of weird, and he's got uh, like a curvy hand going on there. Um, but I still like it, and, and, and I think it's it's a neat cover. It's kind of a uh, – uh, I'm a little more prone because it's Cockroach Hamilton. I'm going to give it a, a B-. minus. It probably deserves a C+, plus, but I'll go B-. minus. Um, interior art. Uh, like we said, I, I like Tuska's layouts and, and his pencil work. I think he does some uh, some good facial expressions in this book as well. But Vinnie Collette Collette is inking. It just doesn't. It's just not well suited to it because you need, um, you know, there there's some detail that's clearly being lost here uh, a couple of places. So interior art, I'm going to give a, a, a C plus. Story, I, I like the story quite a lot. I know, again, I didn't have that. We didn't have that much to say about it because it's kind of a typical Marvel Bronze Age, but. I like it a lot. I think it introduces a uh, a very straightforward kind of cool villain. I think Cage gets a few cool moments to shine where he gets to get on his high horse and is you know act morally superior, but we also get to see Cage put low by the simple act of having his shoulders set. Uh, so I think it's a well put and has a great a great cliffhanger. I do have to say I do like that kind of Batman sixty six style cliffhanger being tied between the two halves at a Harlem River Bridge. So I'm gonna give the story a a, a, a a B, and overall, I'm going to call it a B overall for the book. What do you B guys think? B for badass book. B for badass. What? Damn. I like I like in the cover where he's falling through the rings of smoke coming out of the uh, out of the marquee sign. And uh, what, what 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 exactly is he shooting out of that shotgun? Pink uh, pink, lasers, pink rays of death. Pink rays of death. He's it's like trying. it's like an, it's like the purple death ray that the Amazons have. Pew. Um, I'd say for the cover, I, you know, the background, it's just kind of a little bit plain. It's just, I mean, the, the front's kind of dynamic, but it seems like there's just that one building back there that just, I don't know, it's just bugging me for some reason. But I, I think, I'll, I think I'll give it a C plus on the cover. Um, the interior, wow. Cockroaches, man, that's one ugly dude. <laughs> and he is drawn ugly. Yeah, you know, we get the best appearance, uh, the guest appearance by Ray Bradbury, a gay pirate, uh, a pre-Magnum PI Tom Selleck as the de- as Detective Chase, with no mustache. All you need is a mustache on him, and he's Tom Selleck from Magnum with the shirt. What do you think? No? Yes? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, could work, or he could be uh, uh, David Hasselhoff. Oh, yeah, even better. Make his hair black. And he's, Kit, let's go. I don't know about that, David. <laughs> like shut up and drive you stupid car jesus why am why am i driving you're an intelligent car why do i drive at all uh um yeah i'm gonna give it a c plus on the interior art 
And the story, yeah, you're right with the Batman 66 ending. And Dad was pretty smart, blasting him with a gas canister, too, knowing that he really can't hurt him, and he knocks his ass out. So I kind of like that. So I, I'm actually going to give the story uh, a B plus, A minus. So that's bringing me up to probably about a B as well with a book. Das book. Okay. Uh, points to Gil Kane for the cover for managing to work in his up nose shot for the on the billboard. <laughs> Bonus points to Gil Kane. It's, it's almost like that's my trademark. I'm figuring out a way to get it in here, even though Both I'm showing. Uh, it, it, it's almost stereotypical Gil Kane. He's got the up nose shot. I mean, Gil Kane was famous for the sprawling hero or sprawling villain getting punched, usually, as opposed to getting shot with a pink ray shotgun blast. Um, something about the way Cage is drawn that he doesn't look so much like he's being propelled by the shot as it looks like he's kind of floating on air. And that's that's a negative to me. Uh, also, just the characters are just... I feel like they should just be a little bit bigger, a little bit more dominant on the page. The lack of backgrounds doesn't really bother me so much because he does have the building there, and from the angle you're looking at, even if you were in Manhattan, you wouldn't see much more than the one building close to you. So I'm okay with that. Uh, so I'm seeing pluses, I'm seeing minuses. Overall, uh, overall, I, I think it's a C-plus cover. The interior art... Again, I don't really have too much of a problem with the with the uh, George Tusca artwork here. I don't see the goofy-looking people that I see see so often in his work that do bother me. Uh, but I really think that Vince Coletta just kind of sold him short on uh, on this one. Uh, I'm, I'm looking now. I'm thinking David Hasselhoff, maybe Michael Landon. <laughs> uh, I, th I just think he could have done so much more with with the layouts that he had. I think it's it's pretty well paced and and you know does a decent job of storytelling so my, my criticism is mostly the finer work on it which i think i'm going to put that at the feet of, of uh, coletta but the artwork is what the artwork is so the book is going to get a c on the artwork from me uh story is kind of just fun for the most part it's a little silly at points but enjoyable uh and i, I like the ending i like the cliffhanger ending uh so I'm going to say a B minus, and overall I'm going to give the book a C plus. Uh, no points lost for it, but the next issue does not resolve this uh, cliffhanger. The next issue is a fill-in issue, fill -in. and then yes, they get back right. to this after two issues. So actually, the the next one is is 29. Is that Mr. Fish? Yes, it is the infamous Mr. Fish. Nobody laughs at Mr. Fish except anybody reading the story. <laughs> yes. Um, actually, yeah, there, there was a couple of times the series had fill-ins like that. In fact, before the second appearance of Camestro, they were so late. Camestro? Actually... What is that? Destro's cousin? No, Camestro. Camestro, Camestro, whichever. The, uh, Curtis Carr or Calvin Carr or whoever the third guy is whose name I'm forgetting. Uh, before the second appearance of that character, they actually reprinted his first appearance. <laughs> which was like from like a year and a half earlier. So <laughs> the dreaded deadline doom did play havoc sometimes on, uh, on, on Luke Cage in his solo run era. So <laughs> I guess it could be chemistro chemistry, chemistro. I, I was know, like, it's just the way I always thought of it, but I, I could be wrong. I don't know. 
the third Chemistro was the one that um, was the most memorable because he was during like around the 100s when uh, when Jim Osley was writing it. And he he repeatedly anytime he ran into Cage, he would call him an Oreo. And reading that when I was in college, I was uh, like, really, they got away with that in the in the early 80s, calling breaking that out and, and saying Cage was white on the inside and only black on the outside. I was like, wow. That was a that was kind of that was, that kind of took me aback the first time I read it, but uh, but that's not that unfortunately Camestro is not being featured tonight. So Camestro, Camestro, the guy in green and yellow, or sometimes red and blue. Electro? Oh, yes, Electro. <laughs> the first Camestro actually went on to go work for Tony Stark for a while, as all uh, you know electronics geniuses do in the Marvel universe. That's where I'd go work. Yeah, I hear he's got a great four hundred one k. You just got to deal with, you know, the melter attacking the plant every couple of months or something like <laughs> the that. The melter. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're about, we're probably coming up on two hours in. Oh, yeah, I'm not doing my book. <laughs> okay, I was going to give you the choice <laughs> on it. But yeah, no. no. I, I think that I made choice that decision, has been made clear. I made that decision 20 minutes ago and went, no. All right, so <laughs> Bill has a book for today. I will vouch for him on that. I have and a book. he'll bring it in a few weeks when he doesn't have anything else to cover. When I have nowhere else to go, uh, 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 uh. Oh. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks. And we'll see you next week. But, um, <laughs> uh, bah, 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 bah. what was I saying? <laughs>